I'll read verses 1 through 8 of Romans chapter 4, but I'll focus in particular on verses 6 through 8. So follow along with me as I read Romans 4, 1 through 8, but we'll focus in particular on verses 6 through 8. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now. For the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word, Lord, we come to you this morning and we do acknowledge that we are a people uh, much in need of your salvation, salvation that is not wrought with human hands, that is not sought of our own wills, but is freely offered by you is offered by your spirit and in being made alive, able with free hearts to receive and pursue you with all earnest zeal. And so, Lord, this morning, that you might awaken those who sleep and slumber in death this morning, that you might cause those who are awake in Christ Jesus to remember that it is not in the covering of ourselves, but it is in the covering of Christ. For we cannot be laid bare before the throne and hope to receive the charge of innocent, for we are all guilty. And so, Lord, even now we would ask that we would hear once again that good and glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and that it might move us to worship to faithful living to pronouncement among those who are even now lost in their trespasses and sins that there is but one way to be reconciled to the holy maker of heaven and earth and that is through the one who has remade all things even Christ May we rejoice in you this morning, we pray, to the preaching of your word. Amen. And so Paul is endeavoring to present a defense of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as something that is not unique to the Old Testament. But it is as old as... It's time itself. 
Soon after the creation of all things, on the sixth day, God made man. Man walked on the earth for a time and discovered he was alone. And God caused Adam to fall into sleep, and then he created woman from the rib of the man. He gave woman to man, and we see in that moment uh, the first wedding in human history. And not only was it a wedding, it was the establishment of the church, where two or more are gathered. And it was not long in the establishment of that perfect church that there was division. So don't expect that there will only ever be in the church peace. First thing we see Adam saying of his wife is, whoa, right? This is awesome. At last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The next thing we see Adam say is not an attack against the serpent. It is, in fact, an attack against his wife. The woman whom you gave me, blaming, cowardice, this is sin. Prior to Adam's seeking to defend himself before a holy God and leave his wife out to dry... They said to themselves, as God drew near to them in the fall, let us go and cover ourselves. That, of course, would not do. And for the first time in history, though it was not a long history up to that point, there was death. God himself slew an animal, skinned it, and covered Adam and his wife in the hide of that animal. It presents to us the picture of all human history and the two families that exist on earth. There are those who say, in their sin, we will cover ourselves and we will make for ourselves a covering. Sometimes that covering is as simple and rudimentary as vegetation. That vegetation, however, stands as a representation of all of the false religions of the world. Whether they are organized or disorganized, they are false because they do not cover. And then there is the one true religion that God himself manifests to us and reveals to us out of his abundant mercy, patience, and grace, and that is the one whereby God covers us through sacrifice, through death, the atoning death of the one who he will later, just later in Genesis chapter 3, speak of as the son born to a woman who will crush the head of the serpent. This salvation story, this method of redemption then, is not new to the Old Testament And what the apostles are doing in the epistles after the gospels is showing to the church, to both Jew and Gentile who trust in Christ and even those who do not, there has only ever been one way of salvation. And that is the one whereby God, out of his abundant mercy, accepts the death of another in our place and covers those who are unworthy by the worthiness of that sacrifice. 
That is the gospel of the scriptures. And parents, as simple as it is for me to do that extemporaneously on a Sunday morning, this should be the sum and substance of what you convey to your children every time it is required that they be spanked or disciplined, that though there is punishment for sin and there is temporary judgment, you can go forth from that moment of great rebellion to God and to others in the confidence that our sins are forgiven. They must know what sin is. They must know what forgiveness is. And they must know what it means to be counted righteous before God through the shed blood of another. In fact, as a session, when we sit down with children, children, you need to listen, and we interview you simply so that you might come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see that you understand that you're a sinful wretch. We know that about you. Don't try and hide it. Don't try and trick us. We know that about you, even when we only see you on Sundays and occasionally throughout the week. We know that. We've seen it. You know that. Be honest with yourselves. But there is a way out of what all sins deserve. That is death. Or as my daughters once said when they were professing their faith, where do sinners go apart from the righteousness of Christ? And like good North Carolinians, they said... Hail, <laughs> which frankly is fitting. What do all sins deserve? The condemnation of God. And what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 4 is he is expressing to us the clear solution that Abraham and David and all the saints of old understood. That unless our sins are covered, there can be no hope of forgiveness. Two points that I want to make this morning. The blessedness of imputed righteousness. The blessedness of imputed righteousness. And the blessedness of forgiven sin. The blessedness of forgiven sin. Now, let's look at this first point. The blessedness of imputed righteousness. Paul, in verse 5 writes, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now Paul here is not diminishing the importance of good works, but he is not associating our good works with the decree of righteous before the throne of God. Our works, which are as filthy rags, do not, they never earn us the 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 Sentence of innocent, just, you have been set free. That word cannot issue from the throne of God if we depend upon our own works for righteousness. We have nothing to boast about. There is nothing to find, as Abraham learned, according to our flesh. And then in verse 6, Paul moves to David. Now, children, you know that David was the great king of Israel. Perhaps in many sense, the greatest of all the kings of Israel. And to God, well, and God in, in 2 Samuel 7 made a covenant, a promise with David that a king would sit on the throne of Israel in the line of David forever. Now we know that, of course, to be not Solomon, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that in the genealogies and the gospels, 
that Jesus Christ is a descendant, a physical descendant of David himself. Now, what David acknowledges in Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, which Paul quotes in Romans chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, it's just a quotation, is that David understood how salvation works. How it actually happens. Now look at verse 6. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So what does he mean by also? Well, Paul is saying the gospel that I am presenting to you is at the very least as old as Abraham and acknowledged by David. These two great patriarchs of the Israelite people, of the Jewish people, understood that salvation is not by works, but by faith. And there has never been any other plan of salvation, nor will there ever be. Justification, that is, our being declared innocent before the throne of God, is by grace through faith. Paul quotes this from Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed and it was counted righteous. And here, Paul quotes Psalm 31, verses 1 and 2. So what do these two ancient saints prove? That the covenant of grace is built upon justification by faith to any and all who believe. And so Abraham is not the father of only the Jews outwardly by circumcision, but all of those who are Jews inwardly by circumcision of the heart through faith. Circumcision of the heart simply means Faith, belief, trusting in the Lord. To be set apart by that thing that God counts as righteous, that is, our faith. And so he writes, just as David. There is a connection between these two examples given with Abraham and David. So even as Paul endeavors to put a fine point on the doctrine of faith and works and their relationship to justification, he is showing those who are reading, here is what the gospel is. Every dispensation of the old covenant or the new covenant of grace in the Old Testament always and has always pointed to Christ, the Savior of sinners. <clears throat> right? So Presbyterians are not dispensationalists in the term that is often defined today. We do believe in dispensations, but there is greater unity than disunity. And that each of these dispensations give clearer evidence and testimony to the one plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. What that means then is that at some future date... God will not eliminate from the earth for a time through the rapture the New Testament Gentile church so that he can deal with the Jews. And the way that he will do this in the minds of dispensationalists is that he will reinstitute the sacrificial system. I cannot think of a less God-honoring eschatology than that, other than to just not hold to an eschatology at all. That the work of Christ is not sufficient to the Jew as well as the Gentile. And so what do we see? 
Because the plan of salvation is a singular plan of salvation from Genesis to Revelation, we can say that every man, whether he is a Hebrew by birth or not, a Gentile, can only be saved through the blood of Christ, imputed to him. And so what do Paul and David agree on? They agree on the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Now, what does the word imputation mean? This is not a big word. I don't mean it. It does have more letters than some words and fewer than others. It just means to count. That is, to give. To count something as having been given to someone. And so when we read of the righteousness of Christ imputed... It means to be counted as belonging to another. And so when we read of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, we can read of the righteousness of Christ counted unto us, given to us. It becomes ours, not because it is our righteousness, but because it is one that is considered by God to be ours as he sits upon the throne of judgment. Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Now, as we look at the doctrine of imputation, there's a number of places that you can go. If you want to go online, always be careful, right? That's just sort of the given. And you can do a study on imputation. Now, there are, within this doctrine of imputation, three points that need to be made. And those three points center on three imputations. The sin of Adam, as the covenantal head of all mankind, has been imputed to all by natural generation. That means all of those who have a mommy and a daddy. That's all of us. I know that's all of you. So that through Adam, sin entered the world. And because of Adam's sin and rebellion... All men born by natural generation bear the curse. We call this original sin. You should learn this. Original sin. You and I are afflicted in our conception. So that when your babies are born into the world, they're not born innocent in the sense that, that they are perfect before the throne of God. They are conceived as sinners. The second imputation, as it relates to the doctrine of imputation put forth to us from Scripture, is that crediting or counting of our sin to Christ on the cross. So when Christ is on the cross and he cries out the cry of dereliction, which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What brought that on? The forsaking of the Father, of the Son, it was because the Son was bearing the sins of all of his people, the elect. And as one who was unrighteous before God, the only right response of the Father was to bring the weight of his wrath and punishment upon the Son. The problem with movies and television shows that present to us the physical nature of Christ is not only... They don't represent what he looked like. 
But they misrepresent the suffering of Christ upon the cross as though the driving of the spikes between his wrists were the thing that hurt most. Or the pressing down of the crown of thorns. Or the driving of the nail into his ankles. That paled in comparison to the full weight of the wrath of the Father upon the Son for every misdeed you have ever done and will ever do. And not just you, but the billions of the elect that have been given to the Son by the Father. Every single sin Christ bore naked. And I don't mean physically naked. There was no relaxing of that. For a moment, this is not real homework. Thrust your hand into a flame and see how long you can keep it there. Or just any kind of pain. It's something that we cannot imagine. But it lies at the heart of the doctrine of imputation. And this is why in the pursuit of holiness, it does great good to think about what our sin did to Christ upon the cross. Now Christ no longer suffers. Right? Christ suffered once. He died in his human nature. That one person. He rose from the dead and even now he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And I'm not talking about guilt I'm talking about the reality of your sins as that which kept Christ upon the cross. But there is another element of imputation that we must not forget. And that is the imputation or the crediting to us of Christ's righteousness. It is what Luther calls the great exchange. The great exchange. And so the boundary marker that separates Jew from Gentile is not works or circumcision. In fact, Paul wants us to get better terms and definitions, a gospel-centered lexicon or dictionary. A Jew is one who is circumcised of the heart and by faith belongs to Christ Jesus a Gentile is one who is separated from the saving grace of God because they do not believe. And so you who this morning sit there and with true faith, saving faith, have laid hold of the promises of Christ, you are a Jew, a spiritual member of Israel. And all of you who do not, who have no hope of salvation, you are one who has been cut off. Now, here is the hope. Every morning you hear the gospel preached on Sunday, there is opportunity to believe. But we are not promised another Lord's Day. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that Christ may return this week, though he may. What I mean is, you may not be back. And that's not a vain threat The other day, I was having all these cold symptoms, and I'm lying in bed, and I'm feeling my neck, and I can feel these glands swollen. And I think, oh, I hope that's not cancer. But like a man, I forget about it, 
and I just go on and distract myself from what may or may not be cancer. I've known people, whether it's a car accident, a heart attack, a stroke. I see my own family members walking apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And despite their own acknowledgement of their mortality, refuse to take the righteousness of Christ as their own righteousness and to give to Christ their sins and say, Lord, I am a vile sinner. Take care of this problem for me, please. What keeps us from that? Well, Paul has already talked about this, right, in Romans 1 and in Romans 2. The thing that keeps us is the Gentile technique of saying, I don't have a problem. I'm good. I, I'm a religious. I'm a spiritual person. I'm not religious. I, I give to the poor. Whenever there's a natural disaster, I give to the Red Cross and the Salvation Army. Whenever I see trash on the street, I pick it up, right? I drive a Prius. I used to drive a Prius. I'm not casting dispersions, right? I push. I, I push buggies back into the corral when it's not even my buggy. <laughs> Which you should do, I guess, anyway. Not where you pop it up on the curb by two wheels and you just pray it doesn't move into someone else's car. But if this, if this is what you're going to bring to God as your corpus, your, your bounty of good works, you have nothing to offer. Now what does this doctrine then of imputation, of righteousness apart from works... Of, of God's righteousness apart from works calls to well up within us. Years ago, my family, when I was a child, a young man, took us to the um, Space Center in Huntsville, Alabama. And while we were at the Space Center, we, my dad and I got in line to go on this ride, and it's this big boom arm. And on one end is a weight, and on the other is this thing that you sit in, you strap in, and as it goes back and forth, you, the, the, the cockpit pivots on a horizontal axis. And based upon your weight, they may put a little more or less weight on the other end so that you can actually just sort of jump and go all the way over. Well, the problem is, when they strapped us in, there was a pin that kept the, the sort of bar down that would keep us from falling out. Well, one of the pins was not pressed in all the way. And so as we went back, it was fine. But as we went over again, the cockpit did not pivot on the horizontal axis. And as we went over, it began to tip us. And I began to slide out the bottom of it. We're probably 50 feet in the air. Now, kids, before you complain about driving with your parents and that arm, boom, goes across like that, right? That's what moms did before seatbelts. That was your seatbelt. <laughs> I guess that's where the longing for riding shotgun comes from. It's an evolutionary imperative, right? I don't want to die in the back seat. Actually, in the back seat, you just kind of bounce around a little bit. And my dad stuck out his arm and kept me from sliding to 
death or, you know, a broken body. And I looked at my dad, and my heart just pounding. And everybody's sort of down there talking, and then my mom looks up and starts screaming. And then the people who are supposed to be paying attention that worked the ride looked up, and they brought us down safely. I think about that moment, and I think, if it were not for my dad reaching out his arm, I would probably be dead. My dad's probably done that more times than I can imagine in my life. Times I didn't even know it. Times that were not only physical, but were the warnings of Scripture. Joby, don't go that way. That's, that way will end in destruction. And I don't mean necessarily a road that hasn't been paved all the way. I mean moral choices. To understand and to grasp the reality that there has been a gift given to us that we do not deserve that will bring us into a kingdom of glorious light for all eternity where there will be no more pain and suffering. This gift of salvation, what should it cause us to think and feel in light of what could be true of us apart from the grace of God? Well, certainly thanksgiving. Certainly thanksgiving. My point is this. As it relates to the pursuit of the Christian life, there is no inner motivation there is no human-wrought inward motivation. There is only spirit-wrought motivation. And when we do not live in light of this glorious doctrine of salvation, and our works are not informed by what comes first, there will never be works. Because we do not live a life of joy and gratitude and thanksgiving and devotion. Lord, whatever you do, just tell me to do it and I will do it, is the cry of one who understands where they could have been if not for the grace of God. And so what do Paul and David agree on? That the only way of salvation is that our sins are given to Christ and his righteousness, the end of verse 6, is imputed to us. And all of you who sit here and confess the name of Christ, this is what has happened to you. You wear as a garment the glorious, worthy, righteous works of Christ. You must take off your filthy rags and you must be dressed by the king. All right, second point, quickly. The blessedness of forgiven sin. Verses 7 and 8, it is David who writes in Psalm 31 of the blessing of forgiven sin. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Now, who is David talking about? David's talking about David. And what has David done? David did a lot. David was guilty of many lawless deeds. Whether it was pride or lust or murder. How can David be one who revels in the grace of God and yet be such a heinous sinner? 
Because he understands that a blessed man is not a man who has more works in the good column than in the bad column. It is one who is counted righteous before God because he wears the righteous garments of another king. The great king of heaven and earth. The great king, the Messiah who would come. David believed as Abraham did in the promise. And that forgiveness of sins can only be done when they are covered. Now what is that covering? Covering is exactly what it sounds like. In fact, that was the whole intro of this sermon. Though I didn't plan it that way, it just got started that way. (laughs) That's how we ought to think. Every time you talk with someone who holds to a religion that is not the Christian religion or biblical faith, anyone anyone who ever says uh, some kind of excuse like, right, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual, you know what that means? I hold to a religion of doing whatever I want, whenever I want, whatever suits my pleasure. And then I'll deal with the consequences later. It's just therapeutic moralism. But if we are saved by our works and not the finished work of Christ on our behalf, what blessing is there? Children, think about that for just a minute. Maybe sometimes it feels this way in your home. A lot of this is your fault, not your parents' fault. (laughs) My parents, I just can't please them. Parents, you need to think about this as well. Always negative feedback, never positive feedback. It's never good enough. When you're done cleaning your room, there's the next thing, and then the next thing, and then the next thing. And every time you communicate to your children what they ought to do is with a a disposition of sternness and impatience. What will you get for all of that? A child who does not clean their room when they become an adult. You know why? Because they hate you. (laughs) Because they do not see obedience as a means whereby they enter into the glorious work of building a kingdom they can't satisfy. And because they can never satisfy, what's the point of even trying? This is what all works religion leads to, is a people who do not revere their Lord, they hate him, and they're scared to death of him. And because of this, they reject him. This is what liberalism is in the West. There's no peace for those who do not understand how atonement can be made. And there are many false gods even right now of secularism and feminism and all of these other things. They are the gods whose altars can never have enough blood spilled upon them to bring about the forgiveness of sins. So what do you do instead? You betray. You despise. You revolt. But sweet, sweet is the confidence of those who not only know that they are broken and sinful, but they can bring their sins to God 
and he will not impute to them their wickedness. He will give them his righteousness. This is why on Sunday morning, don't hide when we do the confession of sin from God. This is it, right? This is the sort of metaphorical posture before God. You know me. Nobody else knows me like you know me, but you know me. And you know that I have nothing to bring to you. And so what have we got? We have only what God can give us. And that is why it is blessed. David understands that though he may be king, he is a pauper before the throne of heaven. And that leads me then to the last verse. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. There's only one kind of blessed person. There are those who are seeking blessing of their own strength, but there's really only one kind of blessed person. And that is someone who has been part of this blessed great exchange. And that's why Luther, Luther spoke of it as the great exchange. Um, we are sinners in Adam. And at the cross of Christ, we give him our sins, and he gives us his righteousness. And that gift, Christ will never take back. When Christ does something, he does not undo that thing that he does, because he cannot. Because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is what we mean by the perseverance of the saints. It's a little bit of a misnomer. It is really the perseverance of the Spirit in the saints. And because it is the Spirit who is directed by the Father to apply the work of Christ, really what we are doing is we are, at least in the first part, victims of grace. It's being done to us. God is doing it. The word we use there is monergism. It is an act of a singular party to give to us what is needed to be accepted before God. Now this is Gospel 101. And the reason why Paul is doing Gospel 101, that just means the introductory course, kids, it's the basic stuff is because he wants those in Rome to know that he knows the gospel and that what he is taking to Spain will be the means by which Spain is transformed. It's the thing that will transform Gaston County or whatever counties you're coming from, whether it's Mecklenburg or whatever counties you might be coming from. Even Mecklenburg, right? <laughs> it is the great exchange. And so what happens at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, what happens under the preaching of the word, what happens at your conversion is your sins are taken from you and Christ's righteousness is given to you. And that is why your affections change. Have you noticed that? Your loves change. Your affections change, your desires, your longings, they all are changed. And it's not all of a sudden you woke up and you said, hey, it's New Year's. It's because the Spirit 
is willing and working in you as a new creation. Because you are no longer a sinner. As categories go, the saint is not a sinner as one who is judged a sinner. You sin, but you are now a child of God. You are no longer totally depraved. You are blessed. And this is the gospel that we must not forget. Anything more or anything less is not the gospel. And it will not bring salvation. It may bring some kind of transformation for a time. Some sort of moralism. But what good is moralism at the last judgment? Do you think God will see through that? Do you think that God cannot track down the rebellious or expose the self-righteous? He can. And he will. And so on the last day, I want you to think of it this way. Before God, I'm stuck. <laughs> I cannot go anywhere and I have nothing to plead. What will I say? What will my pleading be? It must be Christ in his righteousness. Let's pray. Lord.